Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. I wanted to let you know about the 2024 tour of the Adelaide Festival and Writers Week, which ABR will present with our commercial partner, Academy Travel. I'll be co-leading the tour with Christopher Menz, a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us for nine days of concerts and performances, guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers Week, the odd restaurant, and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. See you in Adelaide. Just how much can we glean about a nation's history from one family story? This week on the ABR podcast, we feature a special conversation between author and journalist David Marr, historian Mark McKenna, and me, Georgina Arnott, ABR Assistant Editor, recorded in the middle of September 2023, one month out from the Voice referendum. The subject was David Marr's new book, Killing for Country, A Family Story, which takes the reader to early 19th century New South Wales and follows the bloodshed of invasion as it tracks north. Marr's ancestors were members of Queensland's notorious native police force, a colonial invention which claimed to contain conflict and abide by British law, but in reality enacted extrajudicial violence against Indigenous people on a mass scale. David Marr is the author of many books and articles, including Patrick White, A Life, and Dark Victory, and is a former reporter for Four Corners and a presenter of Media Watch. Mark McKenna is a professor of history at Sydney University and the author of books including Manning Clark, A Life, Looking for Blackfellas Point, and Return to Uluru. As it comes up in our conversation, I am the author of The Unknown Judith Wright and Selected Writings of Judith Wright, both of which explore the poet's path-breaking family histories. David Marr's Killing for Country was published by Black Ink earlier this month, and Mark McKenna reviewed Killing for Country for the October issue of ABR. As this conversation was recorded in person, with Mark zooming in, the sound levels vary in some parts. Stick with us. Thank you, David and Mark, for coming on the ABR podcast to discuss Killing for Country, a family story. David, we'll begin with you. Tell us how you came to write the story. Did you set out to write a history of invasion or simply a family story? I've been banging on for decades about the need for us to face our past. Um, When the history wars were at full height, I was a committed, absolutely committed defender of Manning Clark. And all through that time, I knew exactly what side I was on, the need for us to face the past. And in early 2019, at the request of an ancient uncle of mine who knew nothing about his grandmother, Maud Ewer, he said to me, can you dig out something on her? You're a journalist. Come on, can you? I just want to know a bit about her. 
And I tracked down the book, and within minutes, I was looking at a picture of her father, my great-great-grandfather, in the uniform of the native police. And even as I was profoundly shocked by that sight, I knew I was going to write that story. At first, I thought it was just going to be, when I say just, it was going to be the story of his killings. And his brother was also a partner in the massacre business. He was also an officer in the native police. Reg and Darcy Ewer. But I always need to understand for myself why appalling things happen. And that drew me backwards through the history of the family in the colony, which had begun as very rich land takers. They were ruined, they were resuscitated, and they ended up as killers in the native police. And that story encompasses really, in its personal way, the story of the frontier and of slaughter. Mark, how did you feel reading Killing for Country? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question to start. How was the reading experience? Well, Killing for Country with David's writing is a forensic analysis of, you know, how frontier violence came about in New South Wales and Queensland in particular. And it's built on meticulous research across a range of different archives, including the press, the law, government. But really, you know, one of the remarkable things, I think, is that David's managed to give us not only a convincing analysis of how and why that frontier violence came about, but he's also created quite a gripping narrative. And the geographical sweep of the book is very impressive, I think, because, you know, we start in the early 19th century with the merchant Richard Jones and we move forward through the book. We can really appreciate the, the ripple effect, I guess, of rampant frontier expansion from Sydney up to northern New South Wales, southeast Queensland, far north Queensland, the Northern Territory. As a historian, I've read quite a lot of frontier history, and I thought that I could no longer be shocked. I thought that I'd read enough to be past that point. But there were times reading David's book that I actually had to pause and stop and just put the book down because some of the details were so horrifying and then come back to it. So it's a gripping read. It's a disturbing read. It's a powerful book. And I've got more to say, but I'll, I'll start with that anyway. Yeah. David, I wonder if you were playing with the genre of family history in this book. When I saw the, the subtitle was it's a family story, I thought, is that a family history or is that something different? So there's no family tree in this book. No. You keep yourself out of the narrative. Of course. And as I say, it's subtitled a family story, not a family history. So were you playing with that genre? And, and if so, why? My editor, Chris Feig, has a wonderful expression, the cloven hoof of family history. And that is the family history that strives always to find what is sunny and impressive in the past and to boost great connections and to overlook the little issues along the way that might disturb the current reputation of the family. That's the cloven hoof of family history. And I was determined not to do that, determined. 
There would be no excuses for my family in this book. I wanted to understand in the most professional way how this story had rolled out. And that was my aim throughout it. When I'd finished, I was pointed to an essay by somebody who was writing about the frontier in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I discovered there's a name for this genre. It's called CFH, Critical Family History. But this is not a new genre. Read Judith Wright. Read what she wrote in The Cry for the Dead, published in the 1970s. She was doing exactly the same thing with her family as I was doing with mine, explaining the colonial world through the experience of a single family. It's a bit of a provocation for me, I have to say, having written about Judith Wright. It was deliberate. And my family turns up in in her account of her family. Yes, yeah. Yeah, not happily, by the way, not happily. I think even she put herself into the narrative more than you put yourself into the narrative. And she talks about the feelings that this awful history provoked in her, whereas it's it's striking how you really contain that to the afterword. And This was very deliberate. I have a thing about biographers who put themselves into their texts. I stood on the very corner of that Cairo street where once... Shut up. For Christ's sake, shut up. If standing on that corner informs the biography, use it in the text. Use it in the text. Enrich the text. Don't talk about your homework. This is the homework. I could write a hundred pages on what the experience of researching and writing this book has been like. But that's for another time. It's not for the book itself. I know there is a genre of biography where the search and the discovery are all placed in the text. It's not a genre I like. I've read a few that have impressed me, but it's not a genre I like. I am there to use what skills I have to tell a story that ended over a century ago. When I say ended, no, it hasn't ended even yet, but that's the job. They out of the picture. Mind you, I am presenting every single sentence to the reader, and isn't that enough? Absolutely. It is always autobiography. I agree with you there, but it is in stark contrast to trends in current biography. Yes. We could mention Anna Funda, for instance. We could. Mark, do you have a view on this? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I heard David talk before about his approach to biography and, you know, his determination to keep himself out of the narrative. I think that I admire his tenacity in that respect. And I guess I'm not someone who, as a biographer myself, I'm not someone who's kept myself out of my narratives, even as a historian as well. But that's also very delicate. When you do at any point include yourself in the narrative you're writing, I think you have to be very careful about how that's done, how often it's done and to what effect. I've seen it done very clumsily. So it definitely, it's a tricky thing to pull off to be successful with. You have good reason. You have good reason (laughs) to put yourself into Return to Uluru because you make a discovery that is shatteringly extraordinary. And it had to be in the book. It had to be in the book. That is homework raised to an astonishing level of importance. 
Well, thanks, David. I mean, that's true. I don't think I could have written that book without explaining how my discovery, for example, of those materials in the garage in Brisbane. But I wonder, David, at what point did you decide to write the afterward to this book? I always had it in mind. It was always the safety valve, knowing that at the end, I would explain myself. Not at the beginning, not as a door that the readers had to go through. There's a brief explanation of how the book came about at the beginning. But at the end, I would talk about the impact on me and, of course, on my family, because this is quite something for my family. I mean, as it happens, it has the name Ma, but it's about my mother's family, my siblings and cousins, and they now have to live with this book. And it's been, God, I hate the word, but it's been a journey for them and for my siblings especially. And I wanted in the afterward to talk about how far they had come from a position five years ago nearly now of asking me, oh, David, must you? Over the years, learning more and more about the story and in the end saying, as they do in the afterward, David, you must. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think as a, as a reader, I had the sense how... You know, because there's this tension even in the title, right? Yeah. Killing a Country, a family story. I mean, of a book that, in a way, its starting point is obviously that family connection. But as I was reading, I can see that that starting point of, you know, your blood connection, if as it were, right, to this frontier yeah. history expands and to the point where the book is becoming, its starting point is family history, but it becomes a history of frontier expansion and violence right, through that blood connection. That's but exactly what I hoped for. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's what the book does. It, it expands from that starting point out into become a much broader history. And, I mean, when you think about that title, which, by the way, is very, very unforgettable immediately, it, you can't read the book, especially for people like myself with, uh, with uh, you know, or any Australian who has um, ancestry that goes back to colonial times, you can't read it and think that, well, your family story could potentially be many of Australians' family story implicitly. This could be any of us whose family backgrounds go back to those times. And in a way, people like Reg and Darcy become portals almost into the wider history of the frontier for me as a reader. Well, there was nothing exceptional about them. They were not a prominent family. You know, it's not as though... Thousands of acres belong to any of them anymore. We're just family. And that is exactly it. There were 1,300 European and Indigenous Australians employed by the native police in the 60 years of its existence. And they left a lot of people behind who are alive now. What embarrasses me, Mark, is that there I was looking at this picture of my great-great-grandfather in uniform. By the way, the uniform for massacring Aborigines was very formal. It has gold braid, it has a sword. Indeed, sword play was part of the way of killing Aborigines, of course. And the founder of the native police said they must have swords for the elan, for their sense of kind of dignified purpose. Um, so there he was in his shocking uniform. It had never crossed my mind in all the years that I've been writing about race in Australia. It never crossed my mind to check whether my lot were implicated. And I think that that 
embarrassing as it is, is a very Australian response to the frontier. Even for those of us who faced it, who face mm. it, there's another question. Well, my lot actually involved. Now, mm. I don't believe that makes me guilty. It doesn't make me ashamed, but it doesn't make me guilty. But if people would just search, just look, I think it would transform the arguments we're having today to understand that their families too were riding out there, raiding Aboriginal camps at dawn, shooting indiscriminately men, women and children, kidnapping children, the great trade of a kidnapped child. It would temper things in today's Australia. Just on that, David, I mean, I'm just thinking again, your starting point is a biographical one, essentially, you know, which I guess gels with a lot of your previous work. But as you go on and research and write, the book becomes its starting point again is that family biographical thing, but it's it becomes a history. This is the first time you've written what would be called a history, in a sense. And how did you feel in that terrain as a writer? Was there a difference about writing not only frontier history, but history itself? And how did you, you know, draw on your skills? And did it feel different in any way? No, it, feel, it felt wonderful. I mean, the family is like a skeleton of the book. And the meat and the muscles are on that skeleton. Ever since as a kid, I read M.H. Ellis's biography of Macquarie. I think I was about 14 or something. I've wanted to write a colonial history. It's been an ambition. And this was it. And honestly, Mark, I don't feel that it was breaking fresh ground for me. I've always been, in some respects, a historian. That's really interesting. I mean, do I remember correctly that you once told me that you wanted to write a biography of a colonial governor? Well, that was from that childhood ambition. Yes, I'm sure I've told you. I've never said anything once, Mark, ever <laughs> in my entire life. And I emerged from this once again fascinated by the figure of Governor Burke, the good, ineffectual man at the far end of the world who couldn't actually brawl with those colonial bastards who pulled him down. On that, I think that's one of the really great strengths of the book is that you draw out the different commitments of of the governors, Burke, Gibbs, Fitzroy, they're not the same. They had, they approached things and conflict in particular in quite different ways. Did those differences surprise you? The extent of those differences? So much. So much of this story surprised me. I mean, I thought I'd read it all, but what I discovered, when you put it together in a narrative form, stretching over 50 or 60 years, the horrors emerge, but also the awful colonial logic emerges as well. And I did become fascinated in the different approaches of the different governors, but each of them, in the end, terrified to do anything effective to rein in the squatters. And that's a question that, that is with me still, because I'm not sure that we've yet seen the scholarship we need to explain why the imperial government was so frightened of taking measures that would actually see their high hopes for peace and decent treatment of the Indigenous people realised. Each governor came out with this gorgeous message from the king or later the queen. 
look after the Aboriginal peoples. And of course, the period that we, you're focusing on, 1840s onwards, was this, was this period of high hopes, this humanitarian growing movement in London that had had the success of the anti-slavery, the abolition of slavery across the empire, not in India and, and not in a few other places, but in, in significantly in the Caribbean. And there's all those words that come through the correspondence from the governors about their humanitarian intentions of what they're doing and placating words going back to London. But it doesn't really translate at all, does it, and happens on the ground? No. Laws that aren't enforced don't exist. And it was a free-for-all in a way I had not realised how lawless it was. I mean, obviously, it was lawless, but... I hadn't realised until writing this book that the actual functions of the native police of going out and, and killing in this way had no basis in law. There were no laws justifying what was done. And I found fascinating the situation in the very earliest months of the native police, 1848, 1849, when its commander, Frederick Walker, in a sense went on strike and refused to move until he had orders that gave him some cover for what his men were doing. And those orders never came. Never. And that correspondence, it just feels eerily familiar, doesn't it? That kind of the superior holding back, not giving direct instruction, but wanting the person to do their dirty work without saying it. So it's you, must, you must only kill in the most extreme situations, which seem to be all the time, oddly enough. I think what David's book shows again is that chasm that exists between what existed on paper under British law, for example, Aboriginal people being protected as British subjects, and really what happened on the ground, there's this extraordinary gap between the alleged acknowledgement of, of Aboriginal people's interests on paper in London, for example, in dispatches between governors and so on, and the reality of the frontier, which was expanding so rapidly. I mean, in a sense, the British who were incredible record keepers, I mean, you just have to look at the history of the British Empire, and the record keeping is quite extraordinary. But in this case, I think because there were no treaties signed, because there was effectively no legal basis for what was happening, what you start to see, and you see this in David's book, is how there's an intent to avoid recording what is happening, not to leave in those dispatches evidence of the truth of what was going on. Um, um, this is such a huge subject. I mean, it is, it is. I as, mean, as you know, the records of the Queensland Native Police have disappeared, yeah, yeah. presumed destroyed. And from the fragments that have actually survived, including my great great grandfather uh, quietly recording the killing of six, that he'd killed six blacks to avenge the death of a shepherd, from the fragments that survived, we know that these records were detailed. I wouldn't say meticulous, but they were certainly detailed. Mm. Then there are the newspaper reports, and the newspaper reports were written frequently in code, and people who knew the code knew what disperse meant. We dispersed the blacks. It means we shot the shit out of them, we killed them. And it's fascinating to see, to track, as I've done with the help of my partner, Sebastian Tesserero, who did so much of this searching, We've traced the republication of stories in the Australian press 
into the British press. And in the British press, the code has to be explained. And very often, the euphemistic code of the Australian report is then very frankly explained, this means they killed them all. And that's required for British readers who don't know the code. And then, of course, these are my friends through this book, are the constant voices of those who spoke the truth. And the book is dedicated to them, to those at the time who spoke the truth. And we learn so much from them. And they were wonderful. And they were answered exactly as the culture wars deals with things they don't, that it doesn't like these days. I thought the culture wars had been invented sometime in the 1980s, but in the 1830s, people mm. who were defending the lives of Aboriginal Australians were declared out-of-touch elitists advertising their humanitarian instincts. Exactly, yes. And that's another a theme you start to see emerge when you study this history right through, is the physical distance between many of those humanitarians who were advocating on behalf of Aboriginal people and trying to protect their interests and people who were actually out on the frontier who were pleading for protection, as you show, David, from governments, plural, and criticising the humanitarians because they weren't at the coalface. They were too distant. So therefore, the argument was that their sympathy... Oh, talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, there are squatters out there begging the native police to stay away because they just make things worse. And there was one family that I kind of fell in love with a bit who, when they heard the native police were coming, got all of the Indigenous men and women working for them on their immense land holdings into their house and stood on the veranda and told the commandant of the native police to take his men away. Yes, that was such an incredible story, David. And wasn't the surname Dutton? The surname is Dutton. Is that Dutton, just by incident, is that, was it Charles Dutton? Charles and Henry Dutton. The brothers, yes. And is he any relation to the opposition leader? I understand he is. I understand uh -huh. he is. Fascinating. But I'm not absolutely certain about that. I had imagined, of course, in my way, that they must be part of the literary Dutton family of South Australia, but they're not. Mm. Oh, yes. Just talking about the, the Queensland Native Police, which so much the book focuses on, Mark, you have a, a quote in there from a scholar who says that they think that 40,000 people's deaths were the product of the Queensland Native Police between about 1850 and, and 1900. It's an educated guess. That's all it is. It's a guess. And it's based on the records of the kinds of reprisal raids. How many did you kill for the death of a shepherd? Well, my great-great-grandfather killed six. Mm. Though the squatter who called in my great-great-grandfather to do the job put the figure at 12. But by looking at the records of the large number of white European Australians who were killed on the frontier, and by some calculation of what sort of retaliation those deaths were provoked up, they are just guesses. But, but what they are is evidence that this small force, which was never really more than about 100 troopers and a couple of dozen officers at any time, drenched Queensland in blood. And whether that figure is accurate, and we'll never know, of course, for many reasons, you really get that sense of the scale of bloodshed with your book, partly through 
the accounts, the letters, the the stories in the newspapers where people are talking about we you know we arrived in this area, we were outnumbered hundred to one within a couple of years. We were outnumbering the local indigenous people. I mean that seemed to be quite a common story in Queensland. And just the simple maths of that suggests the scale of this slaughter. Yes. We forget how immense Queensland is. It's mm. something like three times the size of France. It's immense. And it was densely populated. On that, David, I was just thinking that, of course, another thing that the book shows very clearly is the incredible amount of detail that that newspaper archive in Queensland in particular, because of the time late 19th century predominantly, that land grab takes place in Queensland over a period of 50 years or so, the press culture is very, very well established and develops fast. And so there's the newspaper archive of this frontier violence is quite extensive in Queensland. And it does represent one of the most comprehensive, detailed and gruesome records of frontier violence in Australia. And there's stiff competition for that claim. I really think that Queensland... And I think, did you mention this, David, you know, that in terms of the referendum we're about to uh, have in, in within a month or so, that it's interesting that some of the strongest, the most vehement sort of opposition to the yes case is in Queensland, which is precisely the place that you've written about most extensively and where so much of this violence has taken place, as if they have more to protect or more to hide. I don't know. Well, firstly, on the, on the press culture, when you look at the voices raised against what happened in Australia in the 19th century, particularly, the established church is entirely silent. Church of England, one or two voices occasionally. The dissenting church and its missionaries from time to time produced heroes, men like Lancelot Threlkeld, heroes. The few Quakers who found their way through Australia, magnificent, magnificent. To read them is to read a modern, decent mind looking at carnage. There were squatters who campaigned against the native police and called for reason and moderation on the frontier and called for it really eloquently. But the voice of decency in the 19th century were the newspapers were the journalists and the editors. Now, they didn't by any means, you know, overwhelm the governments and compel Queensland to rein in this slaughter, but they were there and they kept talking and reporting. And that, for me, was a great discovery in this book, that the voice of decency was the voice of the press. There were also newspapers who, even though they supported the carnage, believed in strong, open public debate. And the correspondence columns of those newspapers are magnificent arenas for debate about what was happening. And above all, we have to say, above all, thank God for Trove, this new way we have of word searching Australian newspapers back to first settlement. It is magnificent. Scholars who spent half their lives finding three useful paragraphs for their histories. This is work we can now do in five minutes. And this is re-examining the history of Australia. On the second question you raise about 
the particular opposition to what used to be called, do you remember Aboriginal advancement? Yes, yeah, the, I do. The particular opposition to it is in Northern Australia, in, Queensland, in Northern Queensland particularly, um, and in Western Australia. I think this just goes to a rather grubby aspect of human nature. Those whom we most wrong, we continue most to despise. It's easy. I mean, if you change your mind about these people, what does that say about yourself? Better that we continue to view them as not deserving any kind of decent treatment at our hands. Do you think that's what Noel Pearson then was alluding to when he described Aboriginal people as the most unloved people? Noel Pearson, the best Lutheran preacher in Australia. Yes, I think it might have been part of that. I think Australians were shocked to discover in the referendum how little sense of obligation the country has to those from whom we took it. And if there's one thing I hope my book can convince people of, even people who really think they understand the story, as I did when I started out, found to my horror that I really didn't, is that this is a conquered country and that we have decent obligations to those we have conquered. And in particular, we have an obligation to bring this contest to an end. We're coming to the end of our time. Thank you very much for joining us and for this really terrific discussion. It's a wonderful book. It's not an easy book, but it's a really important book, not only because of the facts that it contains, I think, but the experience for the reader of going through this detail, seeing the arguments, seeing the kind of logic play out in this slow motion, horrific way. So thank you very much, David, for that. Thanks, Georgie. For writing this book. And thanks very much, Mark, for your review and for being here today. That's a pleasure, Georgie. I enjoyed the conversation. And congratulations on the book, David. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.